Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are here today with our special guest host, Jeff Johnson from the A Film By podcast. What's up, Jeff? Not a whole lot, D. Thank you for having me back again so soon. I uh, had a great time with you and Jason last time. Last time was a barrel of fun. As a matter of fact, we've gotten together several times, and the last couple of big episodes that we got together on were another couple of What the Heck Happened episodes, and that was on Jaws the Revenge and Superman the Quest for Peace. The What the Heck Happened premise is something that my co-host Jason Colvin came up with because there are movies that he just can't figure out what the heck happened with. That's right. Those episodes were a lot of fun. Today, not sure there's going to be a lot of fun <laughs> for my part. Today, we are here to talk about Alien Cubed. We are here to talk about Alien 3, where in the theater, everyone can hear you scream. Specifically, they can hear Jason stand up at the credits <laughs> at the opening and say, what the f you can't kill Newt and Hicks and then throw his popcorn at the screen. Guys, I, I figure with the depression that's going to ensue from this episode, I decided we needed to start with a joke. You guys ready for my joke? Yeah, Let's, I'm ready. Here, yeah. Do you know what happens when you give David Fincher a bunch of lemons? He makes Lemonalian 3. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh i know you're a father because that is a dad joke <laughs> <laughs> okay so you're kidding around but i was really i, I told jeff today i i called you and i'm like i am still angry and bitter about this movie i'm so mad and after doing my research i am more mad more mad because it didn't have to be this way. It did not have these guys effed it up, man. Well, Jeff, I don't know. Do you hate this movie as much as Jason does? I don't hate it at all. Point of fact, I mm. happen to like Alien 3, you know, when we're talking about the theatrical cut and when we're talking about the 2003 assembly cut, I happen to love it. So... Uh, this cannot be he, true, Jeff. He is it, an alien three apologist. Much like uh, the superintendent of Fury 161, I am here for rumor control <laughs> and to deliver the facts. <laughs> <laughs> so before we jump right in with this, you guys remember what you were doing in 1992? Just, other than throwing your popcorn at the screen? I was <laughs> so mad. Okay, so in 92, I just completed my first year of college. Excited for a blockbuster year at the movies. And then... This got us kicked off May 22nd, 1992, kind of early in the summer. I was with my now wife, Catherine, and we went to see this movie and we both loved, absolutely loved the James Cameron 1986 classic, which Jeff, I told you that's the best movie of 1986, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. I absolutely love Aliens. And when we saw it in the theater, I was so mad, but I did not leave. I stayed. <laughs> For the entire punishment of this movie. So just a great time in my life, but this was not a good day for me. I can remember watching this in the theater. I mean, this was, this would have been, I guess, the summer before my junior year of high school. So I was at least driving at this point. I didn't detest it, but I was really bored. I also was Aliens fan, right? I'm not the super fan that you are, but I don't even know if I had seen the original Alien at that point. I loved Aliens, thought it kicked butt, saw that one with my dad. Really loved that one. Was excited for something like that in this. And then when I got there, I was just like, this is kind of dull. I didn't have that visceral reaction that you did at the beginning when the two die because I just didn't care that much. But how it ultimately played out, I was just like, man, this was kind of a letdown. That's it. So... I'm turning 16 this year, but I do remember going to the, the movies to see Alien 3 with my buddies. I didn't love it the way I love it now, because uh, like you, I, I was expecting more of Aliens. But I remember us walking out, and I, one of my buddies going, holy shit, they killed Hicks and Newt, the little girl? And I'm like, no, holy shit, they killed Ripley. I remember just leaving kind of stunned at the, the big risks that the movie took at the time and not really feeling okay with them. But also still thinking like, okay, that was that was different. That was not what I expected. It's not what I thought I was walking into, but I still I still dig it. I still like it. All right. So it's it's our job to untangle the mass of problems that happened on this picture. Yeah. D, what, what do you got for us, man? Okay. So we get done with aliens. It's a massive, monumental success, right? Mind-blowingly good whole lot of people saying it's better than the first one, right? It's an, yes, Jason among those folks. Absolutely. And by the way, guys, if you haven't heard our alien versus aliens episode, it's one of my favorites. 
We talk about Dan O'Bannon and his journey to get this thing. By the way, I sent a text to you guys. I was watching Alien 3 on Hulu, and no less than three times did the advertisement give me an advertisement for medication for Crohn's disease. <laughs> and I was like, seriously, guys, do you get the joke here? I mean, not only did it inspire the author to have the chest burst scene, but it also killed him. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? So that was a little weird too. In our episodes, we talked about all of the stuff behind alien aliens and those two pictures and which one we like better of the two. Now I'm not going to go into all of that. We just know that after aliens, we have got a winner on our hand, right? We have got a, a series that potentially is getting better as it goes along. Right. And a following that is mirroring that of like Star Wars or Star Trek. I didn't realize how big the the franchise followers in this world are, but there's a lot of them that are hardcore as much as Trekkies or what do they call these guys? Xenomorphs? What do they call the <laughs> Xenoheads? Xenophiles? I don't know, but John Xen Reed is one of them. So yeah, John is John is another Aliens Three apologist, right? He is. We'll hear from him in a little bit. He's so Brandywine is the production company. You have Geiler and you have Hill, the two guys, two main guys at Brandywine. They're the guys that are the force behind the movie at the outset. And so they've got this property on their hands and Fox is like, let's make another one guys. And they are genuinely not that interested. What? Yeah. What? Right. Right. Doesn't make sense. Well, so it's not that they disliked the franchise. They just thought, and this is a reasonable thought. They thought we want to make something new and different. And if we're going to do something with alien, we want it to be new and different and we don't know what to do. We've had horror, we've had action. What do we do next? And so they're like, okay, let us give this to a young on fire writer and see what he can do with it. And so they give it to a guy that we've talked about before, Mr. William Gibson, the guy who in the early eighties brought us neuroromancer, the whole idea of cyberpunk. They say, Hey, we want you to write a script, not just for part three, but for parts three and four back to back. Yeah. So they approached James Cameron and James Cameron said, listen, I'm working on the abyss right now, but if you get Ridley Scott to do part three, I'll do part four. Yes. So do that. Right. Is that a no brainer of no brainers? Right. So you know what they did? They actually made the right choice. They went to Ridley Scott. The okay. problem was Ridley was interested, but he was too busy as well. He had other things going on and they wanted to get this out while the, I say, while the iron is hot, this is late eighties. This is, we haven't got to the nineties even, right. and this is late eighties that they're trying to get this problem solved. So he's not interested, but they've got William Gibson working on the script and he comes up with what he calls space commies, hijack alien eggs. You get a big problem in a mall world. Okay. So what happens in his script is the Salako is boarded and towed to a place called anchor point. And so that's why you'll sometimes hear about the anchor point script. This is William Gibson's original script. And I told you guys, ultimately, he produces this as an audiobook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He gets yeah. Michael Bean to come in and voice. He gets yes. Lance Henriksen to come in and voice. I mean, this is decades later. So Lance Henriksen sounds like a 105 year old man, but, <laughs> but it's out there. If you guys want to hear the William Gibson version of this script, you can download the audiobook. The fact that Hicks has lines, I'm already liking this better. Well, that was his big deal. So what happens in this script is that Hicks becomes the protagonist. Ripley makes a cameo appearance at the beginning and then basically goes into a coma. Hicks becomes the guy who's the driving force behind the plot of the movie. And he discovers that, I'm sorry, the Wyland Yanni corporation wayland yutani yeah that's why i'm not going to say it because i get it wrong every time <laughs> all my vowels mixed up i'm just going to call them the wy corporation all right all right or so the company Hicks finds out that the wy corporation is manufacturing aliens and one of the guys who's helping in the manufacturer knows this is a bad idea and he basically tells hicks you have to go back to the source of the aliens in order to stop them. And so it becomes this mission to go back to the home world. And again, it's more like aliens where you've got the Marines, heavy action. Let's go to the alien home world and kick some ass. Sounds great. Let's make it. Now, like I said, this was late 80s, and so this was largely kind of allegorical for the Cold War. And so he gives this script to Hill and Geiler of Brandywine, 
And they look at it and they're like, okay, it's good, but now it's kind of missing something. And what they're thinking is it's missing the cyberpunk, which is the reason we hired you in the first freaking place. He's, he's just basically written an aliens part two. Mm -hmm. So what they do, of course, what they always do, they say, okay, we can't get Ridley Scott. We need to find another director. And so the first guy that they go to is Rennie Harlan. Because he has just finished with Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, which was a brought Elm, Nightmare on Elm Street back, right? It was very well received Nightmare on Elm Street. But Rennie only sticks around so long. By the way, I'll ask this question now. Have you guys seen the other Alien movies? Like I've seen Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, and about three quarters of alien resurrection. <laughs> and then when she had the alien baby, I walked out of the theater. <laughs> My popcorn was empty or I would have thrown it at the screen. Yeah. I, I have actually seen them all. I own them all with exception to the, the alien versus predator spinoff movies that, that happened. Cause I not a fan of those. My feelings for them mirror Jason's feelings for alien three. Yes. I have seen them. I'm like a heroin addict who keeps going back and trying to get that high. <laughs> And I have yet to find anything coming close to 1986. Well, I really feel like there's hope because last year, Prey came out. I, th I mean, I would have felt the yeah. same mm -hmm. way about Predator and all its incarnations. And then we got Prey and it was fan-freaking-tastic. That's true. Yep. So there's always hope. There's, there's always, always hope. hope that they will really resurrect the Alien series. So anyway... I, I just know from reading about it that this, going back to the home world, they kind of recycled that for Prometheus, right? Yes. You guys, give me a little bit. Of yeah, yeah. Those movies suck too, but keep going. <laughs> yeah, well, they didn't suck. They, okay. So they suffer from the same thing that I think Alien 3 suffers from is the allegiance to the Cameron Aliens film, which is stellar. I love it. It's, a, it's an awesome sci-fi action war film, but it was time to do something different. And while we're on the William Gibson script, because Jason, I know you said you you love you love the idea. Let's let's go. Let's think about two things. First off, do you really want to retread? of aliens. And secondly, remember, uh, as Dee pointed out, Sigourney Weaver's Ripley character, she is pretty much the whole movie. She's in a coma. And why would Sigourney Weaver sign off on something like that? Well, that's because she was still upset with Fox over how they treated the aliens cut because they cut out a bunch, a bunch of her backstory, which is thankfully available in the director's cut of that film. So she was like, sure, I'll show up and take a nap and just not do anything. Fine. I don't want to get us off track, but I, let me just address what you're saying right there. Mm -hmm. I don't want to retread of aliens, but I think back to there's like this alternate universe where we could have had a movie where Hicks is the protagonist and he's kicking butt. You know, we're not living in Ripley's unending nightmare. So I think that there's there were just bad decisions made, but I don't want to get off on that. Keep going. Keep going. Well, and I'm and just to touch on it, you know, I feel like she is a key factor. She's a force in the storyline, but her perspective, I think I share her perspective on it. Sigourney Weaver's perspective, which is where's my character going to go from here? I mean, she's gone from blue collar worker to basically Lieutenant Ripley leading and fighting the alien one-on-one -on -one, becoming a mother figure when she had been very much a solo figure before. Right. Even without the mm -hmm. backstory. Right. And so she's like, I don't really know where else this character is going to go. And that's why she's, good to go to sleep for two thirds of the movie. And then maybe she comes back at the end and she's, you know, God from the machine or the savior or whatever. And that's great. But to have her be absent from so much of the movie, when she's such a key part, it's kind of tricky. It's got to be hard to pull off. So <laughs> they said, William Gibson, try it again. He said, I'm done. Yeah. Thanks guys. Appreciate you. <laughs> Uh, so before Rennie leaves, before Rennie Harlan leaves, he says, check out Eric Red. He can help you out with the rewrites. And so Eric Red takes it. Eric Red is the writer of The Hitcher, which Jeff and I covered yeah. on, on your podcast. That movie is spectacular. Love that movie. Eric Red. Now, listen, if you're, if you're leaving Gibson behind, Eric Red is a great way to go because in addition to The Hitcher, let's not forget, he does one of the coolest vampire films ever which happens to star Lance Hendrickson. This is the guy behind near dark. His version kills everyone and has an entire new set of characters fight the aliens. Talk about the worst of both worlds. He not only kills Ripley right off the bat, he kills Hicks and Newt as well, right? They're all gone and there's an entirely new fight and it takes place. You ready for this in a small town America in space, which of course 
because you guys have seen it, you know they recycled this for Aliens versus Predator Part 2. Yeah, when they got that, they're like, you're fired. You, right. I mean, <laughs> you killed everyone. Right. Yeah, no, get the, get the heck out of here. So they fire him. So both Harlan and Red are gone. So they hired David Toohey who is the guy who did Chronicles of Riddick. They hire him to improve on William Gibson's original script. But by this time, the Cold War is over. It can't (laughs) be your source material anymore because (laughs) communism has fallen. So Tui turns Anchor Point into a space station that is populated by convicts. Yeah. And so, okay, so we're seeing the beginnings of what we know will be the ultimate end. Uh, again, the WY Corporation is conducting illegal experiments on the inmates. At this point, Joel Roth, who is the president of Fox Studios, says, wait a minute. Did you guys say you don't have Ripley in the first two thirds of the movie? Uh, yeah, that's not going to be OK. You'd need to put her back in. And so this, of course, is what switches and why Hicks gets killed off, which Obviously, Michael Bean is not happy about that. I mean, he's been involved in this process the whole time. He thinks, oh, I'm going to become the star of the show. And then he's told, no, you die in the opening credits. Not only is he not happy about it, he's mega pissed. Yeah. Well, so and then Sigourney Weaver comes onto the set because they're they're doing stuff. They're like they're building sets. They're building sets. They're doing special effects. And she calls up Michael Bean and she's like, hey, uh. Did you give them permission to like create a dummy of you? And he's like, what are you talking about? She's like, I was there and they have a full on chest burster explosion dummy model with your face on it. Mm -hmm. And so he gets on the horn with his agent and he's like, no way, man. And they're like, how about if we pay you? And he says, not all of the money in the world. When I'm listening to him say this, he goes, I was very young and stupid at that moment. (laughs) (laughs) And so what we get is this kind of grainy. When we see the movie, you don't see his face, but it's not recognizable as him. Right. In the movie, there's like a steel beam that goes through his face. Yeah. You can't see his face at all. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you can't in the theatrical cut. Now, in the assembly cut in 2003, it is, you know, and again, it's a cleaner, you know, they, they went in, they cleaned up the movie. They did, they did a lot more work on it before they released it. And while you can't see that it is Michael Bean, you can see what might've been left of Michael Bean. And it's a, it's, it's a gruesome shot because you get a better, the whole salvage operation of getting the survivors there is much more clear. And his jaw is kind of, he gets impaled and his jaws kind of like hanging like a skew. And it's, it's pretty pretty, pretty gruesome. Eventually the studio calls them back and they say, okay, we're not going to use a model of you. We would like to use your picture. And so he's smartened up a little bit by this time. And he's like, lots of money, give me lots and lots of money. They end up paying him almost as much money for the use of his picture as they did for the first movie he was in. I had the opportunity to uh, to meet him a couple months ago. Fascinating guy. A lot of fun to talk to. I knew that this was a sore subject, so I steered clear of it. We never, aliens never even came up until we were leaving. And he was he was gracious enough to say, hey, if your listeners want something, let them know this. My favorite character that I ever played when we're talking about a hero character is Corporal Hicks. I love that character. I wish I could have done more with him. And I heard him talking about this. This is like David Fincher's first duty as director. They're like, hey, Mr. Director, call Michael Bean and tell him that we're killing him off. Oh, my gosh. So he's like, okay. And they're like, oh, by the way, ask him if we can use his picture. (laughs) So David Fincher is like, you know, he's a young guy and this is an opportunity to make a blockbuster sequel. And he's happy to have the job. Excuse me, Mr. Michael Bean. This is David Fincher. I know you don't know who I am, but I've directed music videos on MTV. You've probably seen, you know who Madonna is, right? We're going to kill off your character. And Michael Bean said, F you and F you guys for doing this to me. And just like went on a tirade, you know, Dave Fincher's like, okay, all right. Well, how about a picture? No, F you, you know, and it was just one of those phone calls. Yeah. They've, they've at least got Weaver who is, like I said, only kind of partially interested in it in the first place. Right. And really bought in because she thought, I'm only going to be in the the third act, right? That's the only part I have to worry about. But they are saying, okay, well, we're going to give you $5 million, but you do have to be in the whole movie. And so after that offer, she says, okay, I have two conditions. The story has to be better than it is right now. And no guns. I'm sorry. What? What? 
And there's this famous bit where like during the production of Aliens, she calls James Cameron over and she's like, hey, uh, I get excited when I read a script and I don't necessarily read all of the side notes. I kind of just read my lines and other people's lines. And I didn't really realize how much gunplay was involved in this. And I'm not really comfortable with it. I'm, I'm anti-gun. And James Cameron says, you should probably read the side notes next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's talk about this for a second. because. That's one of the major problems with this movie is they play hide and seek for two hours. There's nothing going on, in my opinion, just just running around the idea that your lead actor can have that kind of influence and pull out. There's no weapons. There's no real guns. That's just stupid. I Somebody should have stood up to her and said, no, no. I don't have any problem with the complicating factor of there are no guns. I mean, in, in real prisons here in the, in the U S today, even if you are law enforcement, you cannot go into the prison with a firearm. They don't let it happen. So it makes sense on a prisoner world that they wouldn't have firearms, but it's not as though those are the only weapons that exist. I mean, in the first movie, you've got flamethrowers. If you want to pull up Prey, for example, you've got bows and arrows. You've got spears. You've got clubs. You've got all kinds of weapons that you can find a way to use creatively. And they just didn't do a really good job of that on this. Respectfully, I have to disagree while I agree with Sigourney here. If not for anything else, it levels the playing field. Because in the first movie, like Jason said, we've got flamethrowers. Yeah, the Nostromo has an intelligent crew that can at least use the technology they have to create weapons. And then we up the stakes in aliens because now we've got the, the colonial Marines. We've got all the pulse rifles in the world. And that's a good thing because now we've got a, a whole hive of these things running around. So again, the playing field was leveled. Now we come to the third one. And if we know the idea is we're going back to basics, we're going back to the one lone alien that's going to hunt the people on fury 161 we can't have all these guns because it's it's not a fair fight and it's not the tension isn't there for for someone like me i i I feel like okay yeah it's a prison and she points out you know it's a prison where's where's the weapons and like d said in in a real prison you do not have weapons because it's it's a safety threat because if the if the prisoners get a hold of them then you got a real problem so i love the idea of them going we don't have weapons we don't have anything nothing works you know this is a defunct you know mining operation and we're just the guys that are here as the stewards you know keeping keeping the lights on i think it works for that that reason <laughs> i i think that there's i think there is definitely an opportunity to be creative that they but they missed it they missed the opportunity to be creative we're, we're on writer number three at this point david okay. tui yeah and now he's got the task of writing it the way that sigourney weaver wants it and he's modifying writer number one's script so he rewrites william gibson's script with zero guns but they still don't have a director yet because the seat left right so they approach vincent ward vincent ward has just done the navigator he's a young hotshot, and so they're like we want you to come on and direct and at first he's like no i'm good and if you look at his body of work i can't imagine him doing a a big budget studio picture like this it's right. not his style but he ultimately comes back and he says, listen, I'll do it, but I want to be able to rewrite it with my own ideas. He tells them what some of those ideas are. And they're like, yeah, those sound great. Let's do that. And so he says, all right, I got a writing partner. His name is John Fasano. That's mm -hmm. writer number four. If you're keeping tally here, he are says, we, are we including Sigourney Weaver as part of the writing crew on this? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So he comes in to help him turn out a full script, but Part of what writers do, not just as a professional courtesy, but as just kind of a, re a requirement with the WGA, if you're rewriting another writer's script, you call and you let them know what's going on. Well, the problem is they had not mentioned to David Tui that they were having his script rewritten. So Fasano calls Tui and Tui has no idea. He calls Fox and they flat out lie to him. They're like, uh, no. No, no, no. The Fasano's working on Alien 4. Alien 4. And Tui's wow. like, okay, all right. He calls Fasano back, and Fasano's like, uh, no, I'm working on Alien 3. I assure you. 
And so he calls Fox back again and they're like, yeah, okay. So no, no. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But we will still use your script for part four. And Tui throws a hissy fit and just says, I'm just going to satisfy my contract. I'm going to finish this script and then screw you guys. I'm going home. Yeah. That's the fourth writer we've lost so far. Okay. Yeah. So Ward and Fasano, they come up with a script that has a wooden space station, a wooden planet, if you will. Mm -hmm. I saw the That's no of moon. <laughs> it does. It looks like a wooden Death Star. Yeah. That's no yeah. moon. It's a terrarium. <laughs> <laughs> they change it to a wooden space station and monks who are anti-technology living on this wooden space station. And then the monks believe that Ripley is sent to them as a test of their faith. And the alien is sent to them as punishment for their sins. And again, we have some of this carry over into the actual sure. movie, yeah. but apparently there was with Ward and Fasano's script, there was a lot more Judeo-Christian imagery. And according to the fan base, according to the xenophiles, if you will, it is regarded as one of the best screenplays never made. I don't know if I'm going to go out and agree with that. If you've got a wooden space station and monks fighting the alien, sounds like a yawn fest to me, but I haven't read it. So it, I don't know. So now they say, okay, we like your script, but Ripley has to live at the end. <laughs> and Fasano's like, uh, thought she wanted to die. They're like, we don't care what she wants. She has to live. And so he's like, okay. Hang up, call Sigourney. Uh, yeah, they said they want you to live. She says, if I do not die at the end, I am not doing any more on this movie. And so he, I guess, tries to split the difference. And so his solution is she dies almost like the aliens, like coming up. It, the monk has given her some sort of herbal serum and she hasn't eaten the whole movie, right? Like she's basically pregnant with this alien in her yeah and the monk gives her this serum which is going to cause her to vomit up the alien and then he takes it into himself and then sends her off of the planet to let the planet burn and kill the alien these people should all be fired these are all terrible <laughs> ideas I think this guy was probably just hung up on an ending and maybe was watching The Exorcist the night before it's due and goes, hey, that's a good idea. Yeah. I'll just. Um, great idea. Yeah. So, I'll just, yeah I'll, well, no, I'm just talking like, all right, well, the, the demon is inside the, the person. I'll get it out. I'll take it into me and then I'll kill myself. And, you yeah. know, throw myself yeah. down a flight of steps or I'll burn down a, a monk's planet. I, you know, yeah, that's yeah. that's a terrible idea. Right. Well, so, you know, who else thought so? Fox. And they're like, wooden planet is a terrible idea. Let's do something else. And Ward is like, no, wooden planet. I am dying on this hill. And they say, okay, <laughs> you're dead. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. Director number, I don't know, I've lost count, is gone. They get rid of the writer that came on with him as well, of course. And they go to yet another writer, Mr. Larry Ferguson, who brought us Beverly Hills Cop 3. P.U. Yeah. <laughs> So they bring him on, takes he takes another swing, and he churns one out in only two months, and everyone loved it. No, wait, I'm sorry. Hated it. Everyone <laughs> hated it. And he immediately gets fired. So at this point, they have got a multitude of scripts, different drafts of all of them. So Geiler and Hill basically take all of these scripts and just start cutting and pasting and ripping and shredding and trying to put a Frankenstein's monster together to make one good script. And so we are, once again, no director, no writer. What do we do? Bring in David Fincher. Why? Because he is one of the greatest directors of all time? No, because he is somebody that we can push around. They expect a yes man. When they get this guy. Now, his big claim to fame was that he had just won the video music award from MTV for one of his music videos. They bring him on to do a follow-up movie to two of the biggest movies of all time. Right. Oh, by the way, five weeks until shooting has to begin, 
we have 10 drafts of three unfinished screenplays that nobody likes and $17 million of your $14 million budget has already been spent. Oh yeah, they've also built the set based on the Ward and Fasano script, which we're not using. That's a terrible way to come into a job. Yeah. Here, now here's the thing. We all know David Fincher on this side of history, yeah. right? Fight Club, Panic Room, Social Network, Seven. Gone Girl, Girl Gone, with the Dragon Tattoo. Yes. I mean, brilliant, unbelievable movies. He's a talented guy. He's a smart guy. This is a toxic situation. Right. And so with this toxic situation, the logical conclusion as the director is, they're going to give me some more time to fix this multitude of problems, right? They're going to they're going to let me get this, you know, they're going to push things out so that I can get this done. But here's the problem. The trailer had already been released yes. long before. And ladies mm -hmm. and gentlemen, if you'd like to go watch the original trailer for Alien 3, you are going to be incredibly surprised at what they have. In 1992, we will discover on Earth everyone can hear you scream. Yeah, so I just watched it clearly indicating that this battle is going to happen on Earth. 100%. Yeah, the tagline for the trailer was, on Earth, everyone can hear you scream. Mm -hmm. Listen, okay, stop right there. That's the best idea that they've had the entire time they've been working on this. Yeah. Get this thing going on Earth. This would be amazing. Yeah. It still would be. They could make this today. I'd go see it. Let's go. Right. I mean, if you're if your part three is the aliens come to Earth and then you know that you're coming into part four and you give us a to, to be continued ending where it's like the only way that we can defeat them is we have to go to their home world. And so part four takes place on Xenomorph world. Sounds great. Yes. Those yeah. are two fantastic movies that don't seem like they'd be that hard to write. You know what the problem with this was? The three of us aren't in the writer's room That's back right. in 1992. That's right. Because <laughs> it would have worked. this thing throughout the whole process here. Gosh. Yeah. So the trailer had already set the release date. So Fincher comes into this toxic waste dump, like you've said, and he has one year to get everything shot, edited. He didn't even have a finished script. He says, will you give me 93 days for principal photography? Studio says 70. James Cameron had over twice as much time. Keep in mind, he had Terminator under his belt at this point. Right. Fincher mm -hmm. had the Vogue video. Yeah. <laughs> <No. laughs> That's a great video, by the way. It is good, it is. but it's, it's hardly <laughs> aliens, right? That's true. <laughs> Fincher said to all directors, hey, listen, don't take a project like this unless you've got something big under your belt. Cameron had Terminator and he could push back and say, no, I'm not doing this. Venture mm -hmm. had the Vogue video. It's not happening. Right. So then this is where the problems really begin. It was not with the cast and crew. Everybody on the cast absolutely loved Fincher. They revered him. They were like, this dude has got it together. He knows what he's doing. He's doing brilliant new things. Sigourney Weaver's talking about the first time that they met and they have this long talk about the script. And so at the end, she's like about to leave. And she's like, so how do you see my character in all of this? And he says, I don't know, bald. And she says, I fell in love with him at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was falling in love with this guy though, because for all the problems that he was dealing with, with the studio, he wasn't bringing it to the workplace. He wasn't bringing it to set. This is a guy that's like 26, 27 years old. You know, one thing I always think about is like uh, Terry Rollins, who was the editor on this movie, uh, him and the crew, they talked about how this guy, he knows actors. He likes actors. He, he was walking around the set going, Hey, I'm influenced by Hitchcock and John Ford and wait till you see this shot is going to be a Hitchcock shot or this shot's going to be a Ford shot. They're eating him up. They, they love him. And I think that says a lot about his character though. He can come into such a mess and not let it bleed out and, and deal with the crew because they are all like, Oh yeah, we had a great time on the film. We had no idea all these problems were existing. So, yeah, I got to tell you that knowing what he came into at this point, knowing what he came into and seeing the movie that he put out that he had, so little control over. I have all the admiration in the world for him. And I am impressed that it is actually as good as it is. Yeah. And that it got released in the first place. And he even mm -hmm. talks about that. He's like, you would think that the studio would want to put out the best product that they can. 
but what is more important to them is just that it be released. I'm with you. I don't put any of this on Fincher. In fact, I think it's admirable, the job that he did. In fact, I'd like to talk to you guys about a few things that I think that they got right. This is perfect time okay. to talk about it. Okay. I was yeah. just about to hit that spot in my notes. Okay. Well, my number one thing is what did they get right? Number one, not much. Okay. Not much. But in my opinion, here's what they did right. Sigourney Weaver. She is a great actress. We love Ripley. They brought her back. Number two, David Fincher. Yes, they handcuffed him. I mean, they made life impossible for him to work, but he is a brilliant director and ultra talented. They got lucky, I think. And then some of the effects I thought were really good, particularly the close-ups of the aliens I thought looked great. Some of the, the other stuff, it looked like a marionette. I didn't like all the effects, but the close-ups and the tone of the movie I thought was dark and scary for the most part. That's all I got. I mean, what do you, Jeff, what did they do right in your eyes? Well, in addition to Sigourney Weaver and David Fincher, the main villain for me in this movie is the studio execs. However, I'll give them credit because they knew how to market a movie. And I'm not talking about the bait and switch they do with this teaser, this little 30 second teaser where on earth, everyone can hear you, hear you scream. I'm talking about what they did with, with Fincher's work. Let's think about this for a quick second. I think there's three iconic images when you talk about the alien franchise and you can just put them up on a screen and everyone goes, Oh, I know that if it's alien, we're talking about the cracked egg, right? If it's aliens, I always think of Ripley. She's got Newton one arm. She's got a pulse rifle in the other. Yep. Okay. This is the one that is probably one of the more terrifying iconic images because I'm talking about that tight shot, that close-up of the alien right in Sigourney Weaver's face. And it's amazing because he sh he says, okay, we're going to do this. This The execs say, no, we're not, don't do that. We don't want to ever see a face-to-face -face with them. He says, hell with these guys. He shoots it anyways, and then it gets back to him, and then they go, ooh, we love it. Right. He snuck you know? away and did it handheld himself. Yeah. I mean, this guy's awesome. So... You know, I, I give him full credit for it, but I give I give the marketing team credit for saying this is what's going to put butts in the seat. One thing I think they definitely got right is uh, Tom Woodruff Jr., who plays the alien. Now, this is a situation where, Jason, you mentioned like, hey, the, the close-ups, the shots look good. The movement of the alien itself, this is a situation where for the first time, it's got a little bit of a character. And we can thank Sigourney Weaver for that because according to Woodruff, who was just a, a visual effects guy, he takes the job of playing, quote unquote, the, the alien. And she says, she pulls him aside. And she says, hey, don't be a guy in a suit. Be an actor. Act. So he gives this, this creature a little bit of personality for the first time ever. We got to remember, this is one of the last films shot with the old school optics, you know, before everything goes digital. The rod puppets that they use for the, the dog alien, as it's, as it's known, and a lot of those are, are Woodruff, just jumping around and jumping out of corners. They got it right when they let him give the creature a little bit of personality. And then the last thing they, they got right, uh, well, one of the last things I think they got right, this nihilistic, desolate atmosphere. Ripley is just, she's how much more trauma can one person take? And I think that the location kind of ups the ante once again. And puts her in a really nasty environment where she's now Ripley's going up against the alien. She's going up against inmates and she's got to go up against the company. She, you know, Wayland yutani is waiting there as like the final boss, you know, for her to defeat. Every good thing I have to say about this probably has to do with David Fincher. Because this movie does not look like any of the other aliens. Like you, it has not the same look. Granted, Aliens seemed like a far cry from what Alien was, but it is nothing compared to how different Alien 3 looks than all of the other movies. You got to credit him with that because it's not just the set design, which is fantastic. He does these camera angles that are bizarre. I mean, he's he's got stuff from floor shots up it, and it just it's not stuff that you see in Scott's or Cameron's visions. It is his own ideas, and it's cool. And he's the guy who gives us the xenomorph cam, the, you know, the kind of weird fish eye running through the hallways. It. It's great. It's like Jaws. It's like the shark vision in Jaws. I loved it. I thought it was perfect. It raises the stakes. You see the guys running away in fear, which is more terrifying most of the time than actually seeing the monster chase them. Even with the part that you hate, Jason, it is that every act of destruction is an act of creation. It's without Without destroying Newt and Hicks, you don't have the storyline that gives us the entire movie. And then I also will say, you know, great job to these actors because they all have shaved heads. 
and they almost all have British or Irish or some UK accent, and they're all distinct, even though they've got that. It's, I mean, there are some that I'm like, okay, this is a wash. I'm, I don't know which guy this is, but there are a handful of guys that set themselves apart as we are characters beyond just the bald head and the different accent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Once again, I would say that that's a terrible decision made by the execs or the people in charge. The actors did the best they could, but when everybody has that thick British accent, they're all white, they're all shaved heads. It is very difficult for me to tell anybody apart. Let me finish my story. Sorry, like, go ahead. No, go ahead. Right. <laughs> because even though when you think nothing else can go wrong, here's what happens, right? Okay. Yeah. So we've, we've lost writer after writer, director after director. We've had no wiggle room at all from the studio who's thrown us into a toxic waste situation, but Hey, good news. We have got Jordan Cronenwealth, the guy who gave us the cinematography for Blade Runner, we are bringing him in and he's going to be this, the DP for this show. Fantastic. Excited. Mm-hmm. The, cr- the crew said, the cast and the crew said, this is the guy that David Fincher would speak to with absolute reverence. Like he was like a student at his feet, just loved talking to this guy. The problem was, is that the first assistant notices these little ticks that he's having. And because the first assistant's dad has passed away from Parkinson's, he realizes that Jordan Cronenweth is at the last stages of Parkinson's disease. And he says, you can't keep trying to fight this. I mean, think of all the things going wrong. You can't Mm -hmm. keep trying to fight this battle. You will kill yourself doing this. So ultimately they lose Cronenweth and they bring in Alex Thompson, who's not bad. He had done legend by Ridley Mm -hmm. Scott. So not a bad replacement, but they've lost again, a major player that seemed to be something that was on the positive category for this, for this movie. So Fincher starts arguing with Hill and Geiler about the script or the lack thereof. John Lando, the Fox executive is involved in these arguments. You know, they're like, well, we'll go to Fox and they go to Fox and Lando's like, I agree with Fincher. He's, he's right. You guys are messing this up. (laughs) You screwed it up. (laughs) And so finally Hill and Geiler are like, screw you guys. We'll go back home. And so they go back to LA. So he doesn't, Fincher doesn't have to argue with the Brandywine guys anymore, but now he has to justify every single take and every single expense that he's, that he has with Landau, the Fox executive that used to be the guy, the Brandywine guy's job. Now he's got to do it. So he would shoot all day long. And then at midnight, he'd get on the phone call Fox and start trying to persuade them to pay for what he wanted to shoot the next day. So now he and Landau are arguing so much that Fincher just finally says, ship me back home and take my name off of this piece of shit. Landau shuts down the production. He brings everybody back. They put together a rough cup and they say, he's going to like, we're going to figure out what we're missing and we're going to go from there. So there's three hours of footage in the rough cut. The studio says, cut all the gore. And you've got all these subplots going on. They're confusing. Our our test audience was confused. They don't mention that their test audience was a bunch of 18-year-old kids. They just said, too confusing. Let's get rid of those. Now they have to reshoot things because there's these giant holes in the plot because they've taken out the subplots. And Fincher says, okay, you give me one day, one scene of shooting, and I can fix it all. And the studio said, no. No. And so they end up shooting some other scenes. Sigourney Weaver's hair has grown back at this point. She's wearing a bald cap through parts of the movie. Gosh. So finally, Fincher is able, he's got all his footage. He's able to sit down. He's ready to start editing. And the studio says, oh yeah, by the way, we need to have this under two hours runtime. And he's like, why? Oh, well, if we have it under two hours, they can show it more times in a day. And so that'll be more money from the theater. He puts his middle finger in the air and says, I'm gone. And he does (laughs) not come back. During the promotion of the movie, he gave one interview where he complimented the cast and crew, complimented the special effects, and bit his tongue. He has never done any other press, no promotion, never even went to a screening of this movie. When they came to him to do the director's cut, he said, I'll do the director's cut if you let me burn the negative and reshoot the entire movie. Yes. Let's go. (laughs) Okay. You've unleashed the tiger in me. Okay. I'm Uh Jeff. I'm sorry if I'm stepping on you here, but 
I take solace in the fact that I I hate this movie. Okay, I mm -hmm. burn with passion against this movie, <laughs> but I love the fact that David Fincher is out there and he says, you know what? I hate it more. I hate it more. I, I've even seen a quote where he says that uh, in 1992, the LA riots, the fires were coming close to the. I hope the fires come close enough where it catches the negative on fire. Jeff, I'm sorry, I can't I can't go with you, man. I can't I can't I go with you on this. Let's let's talk about what what so we know what happened. Let's talk about the bad stuff in this movie. Okay. Let me just start off with Newt, Hicks, and Bishop are killed in the first three minutes of this movie, literally in the opening mm -hmm. credits. That totally screws the Cameron movie. The great victory at the end of the Cameron movie is Ripley saves Hicks, she saves Bishop, she saves Newt. They get off the planet and it explodes and that's the great victory. And it steals that from aliens. So to me, it's impacts a movie that I love. Number two, I think everybody else sucks. Like I, all the other characters I care nothing about, uh, even guy who plays Dylan. I mean, Dylan's okay. Dylan does some stuff and then they run around and they play hide and seek the whole time and nothing happens. Literally nothing. They just guys are getting picked off here and there. And then finally, I, you know, one of the things that bugged me is the hair thing. And I know this is a Fincher deal. Sigourney Weaver shaves her head because they make one mention about space lice. They never revisit it. There's no impact. We don't ever see them. Nothing ever happens with this. It's totally weird. And we get to look at a weird looking Sigourney Weaver, the rest of the movie. May I offer a rebuttal to your, th your, your three concerns? Well, I'm ready, man. Okay. Help me. Okay. Love this so movie. I'm, I'll try, <laughs> but, but let me touch on the three, the three things you just mentioned. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with what you said about aliens and, and what it does, but we have to remember aliens, you know, it's a war movie in space. It's got the themes of the, uh, the nuclear family and the heroic military saviors. It's a product of its time. It, it's a Reagan era thing where we were, we love it. I mean, I still love it. We all still love it, but we can't do that again. We can't just remake it. When Fincher comes along, the one idea that he shares with most of these writers and directors that were in the mix is we got to do something different. So while I hate the idea of Hicks meeting an unfortunate end, I understand why it had to happen. If we're not going to do the script with him leading the resistance against uh, Weyland yutani and we're not going to do the script where he's on the anchor point, we had to do something new. And this is what we get. With regards to the characters, you know, I think these are some of the coolest characters we can get in this franchise because, yeah, everyone's running around with a shaved head and they're, they're inmates that are kind of this religious sect. I get that, but I love Charles Dance in this as the the one soft person that Ripley can finally bond with. After all the trauma, she just if she could just have one moment of comfort with somebody. And Charles Dance, we know he's an inmate, but when we find out his the story behind why he's there, you're like, yeah, that's it's bad, but it it's not like he's a a psychopath. It's not like he's a, a serial murderer and rapist like Dylan, who is played amazingly by Charles S. Dutton. This is a situation where you got Charles and Charles. I love both these guys in this film. The moment where he has that scene in the mess hall after the funeral and she's offering thanks and, you know, that whole, you don't want to know me, lady. What she says to him, it lets me know, it lets the audience know, hey, you know what, Ripley, she might be damaged, but she is still very strong. She's still very cold. She's still very fearless because she, she delivers that line where you're like, what? That's how you're coming back to I'm a murderer and rapist of women. She's, she's awesome in that moment. And lastly, with the lice, this is a situation where I might apologize for Alien 3 theatrical cut, but I, I will applaud the assembly cut because it's one of those things where you got you to remember there's like 33 minutes of, of footage not in the movie that you haven't seen. It answers all the plot holes and it explains things. You know, it doesn't just clean up the movie and give it some better digital effects. Those missing scenes are paramount to the movie's story. You would care more about Clemens, who's played by Charles Dance. There's a conversation that he has when they're on the way to the morgue. It's a whole conversation about Newt. And it kind of lets you know, like, hey, this guy, he means well. He's one of the good guys in this place. And you bond with him over that conversation. The opening is entirely different, you know, because again, we see a little bit more of how the Soloco gets into trouble. We see the crash. Him finding Ripley on the beach is, it just looks fantastic. And that's where you really get to see the life situation. This whole planet is infested with these 
these large lice. And the fun fact, they actually use, you know, and you can see the lice and it's gross. The fun fact here is that they actually use baby crickets for all those scenes. So every time they come in and they slough off their jackets and they're covered in lice or every time the dog or in the assembly cut, the oxen, they're, they're, they're moving around, they're covered. You know, Ripley's covered in these, these little creepy crawly things. So you get a lot more of that and you understand that in the assembly cut. So it's, again, okay. it's one of those things that's like everyone shaves their heads. Is it just the cool thing to do? Is it the look right. on Fury 161 right. or... Is there an epidemic? And it's it's because there's a serious problem with lice. Interesting. So you get to see that in the assembly cut. Yes. The movie, the assembly cut is superior to the theatrical cut. Well, I'm not going to tell you. I promise you'll love Alien 3 when you watch the assembly cut. But I think you walk away from it going, okay, that wasn't bad, but still no hicks, no money. You know, I'm, I'm still not happy. So because you're, <laughs> you're not going to get hicks in the assembly cut. But there's I no think version it, out I there think, where Hicks and Newton Bishop live, huh? No, the, the mega terrific happy ending for those guys does not <laughs> exist. <laughs> and I'm sorry for that. But I think if you if you had the chance to, to see the assembly cut, some of your frustrations would uh, be abated. Okay. Well, that's good. I'll, I'll check it out. I do think just to rebut your rebut, if at the beginning of Return of the Jedi, if we started off in the first three minutes of Return of the Jedi, we found out that Han, Leia, and Chewie were killed off screen, there would be rioting in the streets. Would you riot if Lando had been killed? No. Okay. The only reason I make that point is because you're talking about beloved characters that we have been with since the beginning. They, everyone you mentioned was in Star Wars, and then they were all in Empire, and we wanted them to come back in Jedi. We've been with Ripley since the beginning, and these are a couple characters that she picked up in the second movie. While we love them, we haven't bonded with them the way we've bonded with Ripley. Okay. I love I love Bishop. I love Hicks, and I love I love Newt, but I didn't have the same connection to them the way I did with, with Ripley, because I've been with Ripley since... The Nostromo. Here's my two cents on that opening three minutes, okay? I don't have a problem with the death of major characters in a movie. I think it, it raises the stakes of the movie. You know, Spoiler alert for the new Star Wars movies, even though they're years old at this point. Like, I started crying before Han Solo died because I knew it was about to happen, and I still loved it because it was special and meaningful. They could have killed off Newt and Hicks in the first 25 minutes instead of the first three minutes. And it would have been a much more compelling story. But what they did instead is they do it in the opening credits. I think probably largely not to have to pay people to come back and be actors. The other problem that I have with the first three minutes is you immediately see the alien. This is ultimately based on a horror movie. You can't show the monster in the first 30 seconds of the movie. There's got to be mystery. There's got to be a question mark. If the ship had crashed and their pods were wrecked and we didn't really know what had happened and there were signs that were curious, but we don't really know whether this is a result of the wreck or is this alien acid blood or whatever. And then you've got the other question mark of have they been infected? Have what's gone on with them? And do we ultimately lose them along the way? Which they did well with Ripley, but they could have easily done with the entire crew there. And then potentially we lose Newt and Hicks in that first act, but it's not an outrage because you're given closure. You're not suddenly faced with the immediate death of people who you had grown attached to and were rooting for at the end of I totally agree with that. If there had been a mystery and, you know, a crash landing and here are the bodies and they're in a coma or whatever, and, you know, they've got to hook up Bishop to find out what happened, that would have been better. I wrote this down. So at 109 into the movie, you have the opening of an alien egg, which number one, how did the freak did that alien egg get on the ship? Mm -hmm. At 126, Newt's glass breaks. Okay. At four minutes and 25 seconds, Newt drowns and Hicks dies when the, uh, the ship crashes into the ocean. John Reed actually made a joke with me. I told him, I was like, I was out at that point. I was done. I was out of the movie. He said, so in your case, alien, the little three stood for three minutes before I was done with the movies. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Alien 3. I uh, love John. Uh, <laughs> I told you I have, a, I have a softball metaphor for you on this. Okay. So my softball metaphor for this movie is you are coming off one of the best movies of the 1980s. The bases are loaded. Oh, by the way, the count's 3-0. All we need is one run to win the game. You don't have to hit a home run and you swing at a bad pitch and you ground out to the pitcher. This is what this is. It is a horrible blown opportunity. I told you. It's not just that the movie's bad, it's that it it destroys a line and a character and a movie that I loved and it, to me they committed the unforgivable sin in the first 3 minutes. The end. Huh. 
let me Don't ask you a question. Bush. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> yeah. let, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's go to the alternate universe where we can watch the movies that we want to watch. Yes. Because let's. what the danger there is that there's certain movies that don't exist because of decisions made here, right? Yeah. So let's say Fincher is a yes man and lets the studio bully him around and and make the movie that they they think should be made. Okay. Or I'll do you one better. Let's say he's a yes man and we get one of the the multiple scripts where where Hicks is is saving the day. So now you've got basically you've got an aliens redux with Fincher at the helm. Okay. And it probably is awesome. It probably we're today, years later, we're probably talking about how it was pretty awesome. But I mean it's it's kind of like aliens. Say the same way that of the Force Awakens is basically Star Wars all over again. Right. I feel like that's what Fincher would have done. Now, if that would have happened, I think we miss out on on the Fincher that we we love today. If Fincher goes down that road, then we don't get Seven. We don't get the social network. We don't get all of these great, dark, nihilistic, gritty David Fincher films that we we love him for if he gives us the, the Colvin cut. Uh, of alien three. I, I don't, I don't think it happens, man. You know? You're so, asking me to choose between myself and David Fincher's uh, career. That's yes. tough, man, because I love his nineties work. Think of the greater good here, Jason. <laughs> Calvin cut goes by the wayside. I think it's obvious in listening to the cast talk about him, that he was already, this movie wasn't going to destroy him, but it obviously hit him pretty hard. I mean, this this came out in 92. He had a TV episode to go direct after this, and that was all he had. But fortunately, somebody threw a script on his desk called Seven. Yeah. Yep. And so thank thank the Lord that that one got greenlit before, before he decided to go do something else. But I think the lessons that he got from this movie probably made him not just a great director, but made him, we're talking about classic for history. Yeah. This guy is going, this guy is, is it, it should be in any top 10 list of all of the directors of all time. I yes. think there's a case to be made that Ridley Scott made one of the best movies of the seventies. James Cameron made one of the best movies of the eighties and that David Venture made the best movie of the 90s the best the best you, you're calling seven the best movie i'm saying it is in the conversation wow i had the opportunity to speak with dayton johnson on the docking base 77 podcast about seven i can't rightfully say it might be the best movie of the 1990s but it is absolutely in the conversation i remember what i was wearing when I left the theater with with uh, my co-host, Brad Cozo, and we just walked out of the theater and there was about 10 minutes of silence because we couldn't believe the ending to Seven that we just saw. I felt the same way about Fight Club. All right, guys, we got anything more to say about uh, Alien 3? Well, at least we know what the heck happened. I'll go on banging the drum for Alien 3, primarily the the assembly cut, because it really capped off a great, what I, what I feel would be a good trilogy for this franchise, because... The first time out, we got a haunted house movie in space. And the second time out, we got a war movie in space. And this third time out, they said, let's pick a new subgenre. And they said, okay, how about prison drama in space? And it works, you know, from the cold gray white of the first movie to the the cool, hazy blues of the second movie, we devolve, I should say, into this this sepia tone, these yellows and browns, and it's grimy. And and Fincher gives us a, a, a situation where it's claustrophobic and we want to get out just as bad as Ripley does. And for that, I think it's a good movie. I'll tell you this. When, when I got done with it, I literally, I saw it in the theater. I have not seen it since then until I watched it yesterday. At the end, when she's throwing herself into the fire, I thought, how the heck do we get Alien Resurrection? So I actually... Keep in mind, this is one of the very few movies that I walked out of. Yeah. I mm -hmm. put Alien Resurrection on to see what they did. And some no-name guy named Joss Whedon wrote this ridiculous script. <laughs> <laughs> and I watched for the, I probably watched it for five minutes and I see them growing a Ripley. I'm like, well, of course it was a clone. Yeah. She predicted that when, when asked about what's going to happen if they kill you at the end of this, oh, I'm sure I didn't really die or somebody's going to clone me. And she does end up getting cloned. And somehow the clone of her also has the alien baby still in it. I could have walked out at that point. <laughs> I'd be like, what? How do, what? It, it produces well, the parasite that was implanted in from her. 
What? I want to be careful because I, I know I'm dangerously close to to explaining or defending Alien Resurrection, and I am not here to do that. Okay? <laughs> I said I, I said I own the movie, and uh, I own it for the same reason I own Superman: The Quest for Peace. It's part of the the box set. Okay, <laughs> doesn't mean I'm going to watch it. I had to take um, it with the rest of them. <laughs> had to, yeah, it was they, they were handing them out. I had to take it, but the the whole the whole idea, and I don't like the idea, but we have to remember when Clemens is you know attending to her, you know he does take blood, you know he does you know he he does what a, a surgeon's going to do. So the blood sample has Ripley's DNA and the xenomorph DNA, and that's how you get this ridiculous i'm not i know you're shaking i see you shaking your head and i'm not i'm not telling you hey it's a good idea i'm just i'm just trying to clarify well you know it, it had the dna of both and that's how you get this so you know so superhero ripley we've all forgotten that the xenomorph's blood is acid did we forget that part <laughs> oh yeah this we, is the same as human blood with chromosomes just like every other thing uh except that it burns through everything <laughs> what <laughs> Hey, I'm not here to teach xenomorph anatomy. I, I can't really oh, say. I can't, I can't speak to that. Uh, hey, I got one was, more thing. Colvin, for you. Colvin did not make me aware there'd be biology on this episode. <laughs> I got one more thing for you guys. Okay. So after watching Aliens a billion times, I find it hard to believe that the mother alien could pooch out a couple of eggs that somehow got inside the escape ship that ends up killing Newton Hicks and all this problems, right? I, I'm not buying it from the get-go. I'm like, no, that's bullcrap. The eggs, she didn't have time to lay eggs inside the ship, okay? So here's a theory that I saw on the internet. Okay. Bishop actually placed the eggs there that he was a double agent for the company the whole time and managed to save those eggs and that Bishop is actually a bad guy. I, I Colvin hate that. <laughs> okay, no, nah, not, not after what he did, not after the sacrifice he made for Ripley and Newt. Uh, I'm not, I'm not buying that. That dog won't hunt. <laughs> I don't like it either, but somehow those eggs got inside that ship. Well, guys, you've heard our take on Alien 3. I am middle of the road. Uh, Jeff is a defender. Jason is an eviscerating hater. Uh, imagine the scene between the Queen and Bishop at the end of Aliens. <laughs> that is how Jason feels about Aliens 3. But we have our dear friend, John Reed, from the... 30-something movie podcast who has an opinion on this as well. Let's hear his thoughts. Hey, everybody. This is John Reed from the 30-something movie podcast. Thank you so much, Jason and Dee, for inviting me to come on and send you all a Shirley showcase for Alien 3 as part of your What the Heck Happened comparison with Last Action Hero. I'm going to start off real quick by saying thanks a lot, guys, for giving me, what, maybe two to three minutes to talk about one of my favorite movies when you know I could talk for two to three hours. My history with the Alien franchise is I watched Alien with my dad when I was a kid. I watched Aliens with friends. And then when Alien 3 was coming out, I was actually living in England. So it was being filmed over there. There were comics. There were books. There were behind-the-scenes features. There were live events, all kinds of stuff. So I was hooked uh, on the Alien franchise immediately. What do I love about Alien 3? I love the performances. Charles S. Dutton as Dylan is amazing. Sigourney Weaver as Ripley, she's, she's been developed over the course of the last two movies, and I really think this movie gives her an opportunity to take that even further. Uh, Charles Dance as Clemens is also a great character in this movie. I love the visuals. This movie really goes back to what I think the heart of the Alien franchise is, and it is that things are bleak. Things are dark. They are sickly and diseased. These are This movie is kind of yellow and brown tones and very dark, whereas things were a little bit lighter and, and sci-fi blue in Aliens. Um, I love the, the spiritual religious aspects of this movie and kind of the motherhood aspects that come into the whole franchise. But uh, some of the early comic books I read around about the time when I first started getting hooked on aliens, that there was a kind of a, a, almost a cult that had grown up on Earth around the idea of the aliens and maybe how they were an image of God. And I thought, well, that's that's not what I believe, but that's really interesting. So I really kind of got interested in some of those stories and kind of what it brought to the Alien franchise. And of course, this one, the religious guys on the prison planet, take that a step further. Absolutely, this is the biggest thing for me. It continues the message that was set up in Alien. 
you are a cog in the machine. If you want to look at this as a metaphor for capitalism, you're just a cog in the machine and the company does not care about you. The state of life in space is, to quote Hobbes' Leviathan, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And then here's my favorite one. Even when you win, you lose. Ripley won in Alien, but ultimately she lost because she came back and her daughter had died of old age and she was gone. Everything had been lost. She regains a daughter in Aliens, but then in this one, even though I know it's gut-wrenching, I absolutely agree with the death of Newt and Hicks at the beginning of this. She loses everything again. I think that fits perfectly with the message of the Alien movies. The Alien Queen even seemingly wins, but ultimately loses. And if you want to find a, a better scene for this you gotta watch uh, you should watch the assembly cut of the movie but then at the end switch it over to the theatrical cut that's a much better when when we get to the end of the movie and you want to see that part of it switch to the theatrical uh for when ripley dives off the platform uh it's a much better ending to the movie in my opinion guys thank you so much love what you're doing love your show this has been john reed last surviving fan of alien 3 signing off Okay, Jeff, you and John can go hold hands. <laughs> hey, hey, John. Yeah, I just <laughs> want to thank John for for zooming in like like Bishop did on that platform at the end of Aliens because uh, I appreciate the support. Thank you, brother. <laughs> I got to say, when I listen to the 30-something movie podcast, I, I start thinking things as they're talking. And literally, as I think those things, then John says the things that I think. It blows my mind how much we are on the same page. My mind is equally blown at this point at how much we are not on the same page as far as this movie. Goes. <laughs> Jeff, will you come back next week with us so we can talk about last action hero and what the heck happened with that movie? You know, I will be glad to do that. Uh, we covered last action hero a couple months back on its, on its anniversary date. Uh, we had Andy Fry with us on that yeah. episode and uh, you know I, I feel like that was good training between what him and Brad had to say about Last Action Hero and the shots they were taking I, I feel like that was like the the undercard fight for for what <laughs> I probably am walking into next week when I when I when I show up again here I at this moment have still not seen The Last Action Hero not once didn't see Whoa. the theater didn't rent it never ever have I seen it except I, I like you know it's been what 30 how many years now 30 30, 30. Even? It's, a, it's a 93 yeah. 93 so mm -hmm. it's been 30 years since the movie came out so there have been times where i'm channel surfing back when i still did that and i was like oh this looks like a good movie oh wait a minute this i i've heard this is terrible and i didn't watch the rest of it so i've caught little bits here and there but i have never seen the movie from beginning to end so i can't tell you whether i'm going to be an advocator or a denouncer okay this is the last Ooh. movie I walked out of. Jeff, if you'll come back with us, we will dive in next week to Last Action Hero. Happy to do it. Bye, guys. See you guys next week. Later. Jeffrey, mad at me? <laughs> Absolutely not, man. I love <laughs> these kinds of episodes. Are you kidding me? Good, good. Okay. <laughs>